You're tuning in to the TV Campfire with Caitlin McFarland and Emily Gibson, co-founders and co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival, aka TV Camp for Grown-Ups. This episode is part of our series of special releases recorded live at ATX Season 7. To hear our original, the TV Campfire series, please scroll down to episodes 1 through 5. Welcome back, folks. We have a special s'more for y'all today that's actually a throwback to one of our favorite, I'm going to call it a classic, classic ATX panels probably ever. You know, I think that's fair to say. It's a, it's a tiny show. I don't know if any of y'all have heard it, but once you hear this, you'll definitely go watch it. Uh, the West Wing. Or when they clicked on oh, play, they probably also saw that it was about the West Wing. Oh. But you know, don't worry about it because... Okay. Not only is this an amazing conversation, it also happens to be one of our favorite series ever. So this reunion was a really big deal for us personally, but also because it felt very of the moment. Ten years since the finale, just a few months out from the 2016 presidential election. Followed by a lot of asking, what's next? But all of that aside, there are some truly amazing moments in this panel, including some deep cut behind the scenes stories about Yo-Yo Ma, <laughs> the ongoing rivalry between Bradley Whitford and Joshua Molina. It's kind of great. I mean, as an aside for a second, not on the panel, there were some amazing moments that happened like during the festival around this group, specifically with Bradley Whitford. He had the best lines <laughs> of the whole festival. <laughs> that is true. I will say... I had a very specific dress picked out to intro this panel. Pause for a second. How did you get that dress? <laughs> you bought a dress that then I stole. I didn't want borrowed, it. tried on, I fell in love with. That was my West Wing dress. Yep, it was named the West Wing dress. And as we were standing, getting ready for the West Wing cast to go on stage, <laughs> Bradley Whitford turns around to me and goes, I never say this, but I really like your dress. And I told him, thank you. This is my West Wing dress. And he looks at me and he goes, Josh Lyman effing loves that dress. He didn't say effing. He didn't say Evan. He said the word, but I just But like, Emily's can't. not going to. I'm not going but to. whenever she wears that dress, I tell her that Josh Lyman effing loves that dress. And I pretty much tell everyone else that I meet <laughs> whenever I'm wearing that dress what Josh Lyman thinks about it. He also, because he's like a rock star that was going for MVP of the festival, Closing night, there was a drink that I named that was called, I was very proud of myself, you guys. It's super <laughs> punny slash very obvious, and yet I was very proud of myself for making up a drink called the Josh Lime in that was, I can't even remember. I can't remember what it Lime was in it. And Topo Chico, and maybe Tito's, maybe tequila, I'm not sure, but he drank it at the closing night party and turned to my sister-in-law and told her that it was called the Josh Lyman, which means he noticed that it was called the Josh Lyman. And I mean, just guys, mic drop. We're done. When people lean in, when people just lean in to the characters they play and who they are, it makes me really happy, especially for a character that I love as much as Josh uh, Lyman. You just want him to be Josh Lyman. He kind of is. Like, it's weird. Um, but anyway, back to the point. Just thought you'd enjoy some side stories about our memories. Maybe not. But... Um, in this panel, which you are about to listen to, uh, Aaron Sorkin's closing line 
is also one of our favorites. We're not going to spoil it and tell you what it is. I may think it a lot throughout the weeks leading up to the festival of why we do what we do. Um, it just it nails the feeling of the festival in a way that only Aaron Sorkin can. So whether you were in the room for this panel and saw Richard Schiff eating the popcorn oh, so through great. the whole panel, or you're a casual fan, or you've never even seen an episode of The West Wing, we promise there's something here for you. But we also have a favor to ask. Vote. Seriously, go vote, y'all. Pause this episode. Go vote now. Listen to it on your way to go vote. Just you need to go vote. It's extremely important. Whatever side you're on, we're very passionate about it. You've heard all the reasons. You've heard it from Taylor Swift. <laughs> so obviously authority. You've heard it on Twitter. And we're sure you're tired of hearing it. But y'all, you got to vote because your voice matters one hell of a lot. If you aren't sure where to vote, how to vote, or who your candidates are, we've got some super easy, helpful tips in the show notes of this episode, so just scroll down and check them out. Are you scrolling and clicking? I don't I don't believe them. I think, do it now. Now. We're just going to wait here for, you know, just a second. Okay. Good. Uh, now that you're ready to vote, let's get this show on the road. Pull up a log and settle in for the West Wing Administration with creator Aaron Sorkin, director Thomas Schlamme, and ATX Advisory Board member. <laughs> Cast members, Janelle Maloney, Bradley Whitford, Richard Schiff, Julie Hill, Joshua Molina, Melissa Fitzgerald, and moderator, Lawrence O'Donnell. Enjoy. I just want to begin uh, with a moment that, that I don't want to let not happen in this room. And sometimes these kinds of chats go in different directions. We are all here, we're sitting on this stage, you're all sitting there. We have relationships, dear friends, lifelong friends, because this guy one day decided to sit down and start typing. Let's just thank him for that. And he's about to direct a movie, so let's thank him again. Yeah, yeah. Really enjoy your work. You know, there were, uh, there's no roles for you in there, Josh. There's no roles for you in there. <laughs> there were 154 episodes of The West Wing, and when I heard that they were going to do a clip of some kind at the beginning of this discussion, I thought, wow, that's a job. Digging through uh, all of this stuff, you're going to do a bit of this, a bit of that. Some, you know, maybe four or five things at least, maybe more. And then I saw that, what we all just saw. And I realized it's the perfect clip, that that scene, first scene of act one of the pilot, summarizes the show perfectly and also predicts in its way the next 150 episodes. Did you know that, Aaron, when you were writing that scene? No, I didn't. I, 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 I want to answer your question in full, but uh, up first, I just want to address the very remarkable thing that, uh, uh, that you said before. Um, yes, I sat down to write the script, but uh, I don't write things that are meant to be read. I write things that are meant to be performed. And so what had to happen uh, to get us here 
in the condition uh, that we're in, which is to say, uh, we did a show uh, that we loved, it, it, it was successful, uh, uh, and as Lauren said, we, it's 10 years later, we all love each other uh, very much, and we all still love remembering uh, the, you know, those seven years on stage 23 at, uh, at Warner Brothers. For that to happen, what had to happen was, first Tommy had to uh, uh, come along, and uh, and and bring his vision to it. Uh, uh, for one, just one small example, the clip that you saw, which is uh, uh, the the opening, almost the opening to the West Wing. There's there's a little something that comes before it. Uh, I will never forget Tommy coming into my office as excited as a kid on Christmas morning, uh, uh, saying, "Come with me. I want to show you something." Uh, and uh, he took me over uh, to our set which was still in the midst of being constructed. It was half an Oval Office, an unpainted corridor, that kind of thing. And he took me by the hand through the choreography uh, that, that you just saw there. Uh, that wasn't me. Uh, I wrote the opening. Tommy uh, uh, found that. Tommy and I, uh, together, found uh, uh, this cast and some others who are very sad they're unable to be here today, Martin Sheen, Allison Janney, and Rob Lowe, and someone who we all wish could be here today, John Spencer. <laughs> Dozens more behind them uh, in, in guest cast, from Anna Devere Smith, John Amos, Emily Proctor, Mary Louise Parker, Stockard Channing, uh, uh, and, and the list goes on and on, uh, and, and a crew of 100 or so people, all of them uh, as, uh, as dedicated to doing the show well uh, as, as we all were, uh, and uh, all of them a better group of people to spend a long day, and it's not oftentimes a long night at work with, uh, uh, you're never going to find. Uh, the actors that we cast, usually if you're casting eight actors uh, uh, for an ensemble piece, uh, you'll, you'll feel very lucky if you were right about two or three of them. <laughs> you don't go eight for eight, uh, uh, and we did. We managed to cast eight actors, all of whom could be carrying their own show. Uh, uh, and now I was faced with a very glamorous problem, uh, which is I, I have eight mouths to feed uh, every <laughs> week. Uh, how do you not give every scene to Dulé Hill. He, he's <laughs> incredibly compelling. Um, uh, it, it, and the, uh, listen, I was always, after every episode, left slightly unsatisfied because that's what you're supposed to be. If, if, uh, if, if you feel perfectly satisfied with every episode, you're, you're, uh, you're not trying hard enough. Um, but uh, that, that said, Lawrence, what was your question? Because I did promise I was going to answer it. I was really struck watching this scene again, this first scene mm -hmm. of Act One, of how perfectly it represents the entire series. That if you did have to choose only one to put up there, that is it. Uh, you're right about that. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I'm glad that that happened. Listen, we, we got better from... Doing, uh, uh, at doing the show from there, as you'd expect. We're, we're a pickup team thrown together. This is a brand new thing. I think that if you were to look at almost any long-running series that you like, uh, you'll find that the, 
the pilot's going to be among the weaker episodes that you do because you don't really know what, what you're doing yet. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that was the case with our pilot. I, th I think it's memorable just because we hadn't seen that before. This is the pilot that was nominated for an Emmy. You were nominated for an Emmy <laughs> on the writing of it. He was nominated for an Emmy for directing it. It was that pilot. It was that pilot. Yeah. He won the Emmy for directing yeah, it. Uh, yes, yeah, definitely one of the weaker episodes, definitely. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, let, let's take it to Tommy. H how much would you give to get that pilot back and do it again? Well, by the way, I would give everything to take back everything I've ever shot. I feel exactly the same uh, way. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's nice to have a long distance I was actually really proud of it, I think for the first time. Oh, uh, watching it with this group great. of people, being with this group of people again, and getting to watch that. Because part of seeing any of these things, you remember the moment. You remember not just the shots. It's like any athlete says, oh, I went three for four, but in the dugout that day, yeah. this happened. You know, And I remember shooting this. I remember asking you to include my three children's name. Uh, oh, that's which right. Is, yeah, I yeah. have three kids named Joe, Emma, and Wilson. <laughs> Which is at the beginning of the thing. That's what he that's does. That's who so Leo says good morning to you. Aaron did that. It was so uh, loving. And that's all I kept thinking about then. Uh, but I do think, you're right, Lawrence. I do think for me to look back at pilots and believe, and I do think you get better. I think everybody feels more comfortable. You're sure of what you're doing. You, you know. But I do think that reflects the show that we did. And I think that as a pilot is an incredible testament to all of us. And Probably, you know, we had a week of rehearsal, which was really great, and we sort of watched the war room and lots of other things, so people started to feel connected. And for me, it wasn't just taking Aaron and saying, look at this shot. It was also, I'd been working with everybody for a week, and I went, it's all gonna work. They all have this relationship. And by the way, no one had met Martin yet. You know, we were rehearsing uh -huh. without Martin, which was sort of by design. I mean, he wasn't cast yet, you know? That was one of the problems, uh, including, I think, the first day of shooting. He still, his deal was still, you know, being negotiated a little bit. Uh, but um, it, it, so the point is, I am very proud of that. And yes, I think I could do it better. Yeah. I could do it better. Uh, Janelle, um, some of us know that weeks before your casting in The West Wing, you had quit show business. You had quit acting, you had just neglected to tell anyone, including your agent uh. at that point, right? Um, yeah, I had, I had been working really hard for 10 years and um, had a, some success, but never enough to really make a living and to feel as um, experienced or appreciated or, or, or talented as I felt like I wanted to feel, and I, I wanted to do something with my life. I didn't want to just, you know, be a, a disappointed uh, hostess in a restaurant. So I, I thought I'm gonna do something else, and you know, the universe, please direct me someplace because this is really all I've ever wanted to do. But I, I, I need to give it up, and um, and then I just kind of hung on a little bit longer, and uh, and I. Um, and I, and I really did give, up, give it up. I decided I wasn't gonna do it anymore. And then I, um, I auditioned for, um, for Donna. But uh, I had already known um, Tommy and Aaron because I had done Sports Night. But, um, <laughs> but it felt like, it just felt like I was, it, it had taken too long and I was um, working too hard and suffering too much. 
and, um, and I didn't want to do it anymore. But then I was just, you know, obviously so very lucky that I, um, that I decided to, to wait a little bit longer. Brad, you know, when I, I knew your earlier work before the West Wing. I'm by sorry. which, of course, I mean Billy Madison, <laughs> right? And, uh, and I'd heard you were cast in this show, and I, and I thought, gee, I didn't, I didn't see that in Billy Madison. Uh, but, <laughs> but you were a graduate of the, the Sorkin Academy. You'd done the play, A Few Good Men. And we came, I know... You would have seen it in Revenge of the Turds. <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> Revenge of the Turds! Because I really dug deep in that. Go ahead. But we... we um, in the writer's room, we certainly started to lose the distinction between Brad and Josh. We, we just, you, you were that person, and we started to think, you know, if he didn't go to Juilliard, if he'd gone to law school, he might have one of those jobs in the White House. Uh, I got to say, uh, look, uh, the weirdest uh, uh, thing about getting this job was um, it's a miracle to get a job. It's a miracle to get a job that's not humiliating. It's a miracle to get a job that is the creative experience of your life. It's a miracle to get a job that is the creative experience of your life that is about something. Uh, I, I, I still cannot, excuse the popcorn. Remember, he did Billy Madison. I did. It's, and Revenge it's of the Turds. A, <laughs> it's called a spit take. Kids. You're welcome. But I was thrilled, and part of this is Aaron's, a, a, a skill that Aaron has. Uh, there is absolutely no distinction between my political point of view and Josh Lyman's point of view. And uh, Aaron would pick up on personal dynamics, uh, uh, on things about actors. He, I, I use the word exploit in the, in the best... Uh, uh, you know, he's got to feed the beast, and he's like looking at, at you know, what kind of what kind of clay uh, he's got. But I think your political point of view was mirrored in uh, in Toby. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> oh wow, Richard disagreed. <laughs> Never, Old never, habits die hard. Never happens. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, and also we, we were lucky because we, we could be tired. I always said that this, we realized pretty soon this is the first line of our obituary. I think that's the way the people uh, in the White House uh, uh, feel. So there, uh, there, there, was a, there was a lot uh, that you didn't have to act. Richard, uh, I want to go back to a point that uh, Aaron was talking about, which is that difference between that piece of paper that he's typed and then what happens uh, when Tommy and you all put it together. What was the difference for you between your first read of that pilot script and when you finally saw that finished pilot made with everything laid in? And by the way, let me just, I don't want to go another minute without saying, without, and once you saw and heard you heard Snuffy's music in this pilot. Texas boy, Snuffy Walden, who did that Snuffy. music. Uh, when, when all of that came together, how different was that from the, 
from what you'd read? Well, it's a dangerous question to ask me because I notoriously don't like to watch anything that I'm in. You could have told me that before now, and then uh, so it took me quite a, was ready for that question. It, it took, and it, I took me quite, it took me quite a while to to watch the pilot. I watched it again recently, for the sake of Josh uh, Molina's West Wing, <laughs> which he, he had. He asked me to watch In Excelsis Deo, which, by the way, was the first, the first episode that I saw because Aaron said, I know you don't like to watch, but I insist that you watch this one. But anyway, I went back to watch the, the pilot just recently and um, uh, was sh uh, shocked at how, at how wonderfully everything um, fit together. But get, getting back to um, including the music, including the entire cast, including the way everyone was introduced, like in that scene. But um, what, what was so amazing to me about, um, about this experience, and I measure experiences since I don't watch, uh, by how it feels on the day. And, um, and finding, um, uh, finding my place in the ensemble was, is always important to me. And in this case, um, uh, because the music of the language was so beautiful, and because it's written in meter and it's poetry, and because <clears throat> these, these characters were so distinctly crafted, um, uh, finding where uh, Toby was going to fit exactly into that music was a challenge. And um, I told Tommy this recently, um, uh, which, which was interesting to him. I don't know how you're gonna react. But um, uh, uh, is that I always, I always thought that Toby was, was the oboe in the orchestra, <laughs> in, that, in that they play the entire music, but until everything else stops, you don't know he's even there. And um, uh, but, but it's also a darker tone, and it's, a, it's an underbelly, and it's, it, it's got deeper tones. It squeaks <laughs> every once in a while. Never. <laughs> Never once, only off camera after we're done. <laughs> um, I squeaked a lot then. Uh, but. Uh, but uh, f uh, but we all had our different instruments, and and now then watching it all together again, even Ex Ex Excelsis Deo especially, because everything was so uh, paralleled and um, and beautifully put together. Uh, the fact that the music all came together and created this incredible symphony is, I think, what what impresses me the most, and is what what is most. Um, uh, uh, I have no more words. Uh, little disappointed you got through it. that without crying. <laughs> One thing I want to say about, you talk about in Excelsis Deo, and it's interesting, I'm kind of going off track a little bit, but it's interesting about the journey of West Wing, because we were there talking about, you know, political service and being, civil service and being out there, and that episode was so much about veterans, and, and justice for veterans and things like that, and now to see Melissa doing what she's doing, is, I mean, for me, I didn't want to let that moment go by without talking about it, it's really impressive just going from in Excelsis Deo to actual real life public service, all from you know what has happened on the West Wing. I'm sure, uh, <coughs> Melissa, Josh Molina will cede you his time to uh, <laughs> respectfully to take this Thank you, perfect Joshua. moment to talk about the work you're doing now, and there's a video you could introduce, which is we're going to find out if these people still have the stuff with your video. Uh, well, I, I will, I'll let you all be the judge of that, but I, I do want to say that as talented and incredible a group of artists that are on this stage uh, today and also the ones that Aaron mentioned. This is the most talented group of artists I've ever known. 
they are also the kindest, most wonderful human beings that I've ever had the opportunity to work with and be with, and I'm not even joking. And Josh Molina. <laughs> I knew it was coming. You saw me, I anticipated it. Especially Josh Molina. And, and they have, you know, part of the proof of that is they've all come on board to support the work that I'm doing now, which is Senior Director of Justice for Vets, and I've actually moved to D.C. and I'm doing... trying to live up to the characters that Aaron created. Um, and Justice and for Vets... doing so beautifully, I have to say. Thank you, Richard. And not without your support. But um, we champion veterans' treatment courts, and veterans' treatment courts are alternatives to incarceration for veterans who struggle with the transition home, get in trouble with the law because of substance use disorders, mental health disorders, and or trauma. They can receive the structure treatment and mentoring they need through the court system to get their lives back on track. And, and Josh has a podcast. Brad's just jealous because I'm on a hit show that's set in DC, and for him it's been a while. <laughs> All right, but Josh. Tell us, Melissa, what can we do to support well, you can Justice you. for Vets? Thank you, Josh. You can go to justiceforvets.org and do sign up for our email alerts. Do sign up because there are opportunities to take actions to let our elected officials know that we want veterans treatment courts. The first one was launched in 2008 in Buffalo, New York, and they have spreading like wildfire across the country. There are now over 260 in 37 states, but with over 2 million I'm sorry, 20 million veterans nationwide, it's not nearly enough. So we, we need uh, go, support. Go on, go on the site, just to, I mean, just listening to the stories and hearing the stories of these vets that have reclaimed their lives um, and, are, and are turning it around into public service as well. It's a phenomenal um, set of, uh, of stories that, that, that proves that it works and it should be spreading around the country. And I'll just say, like, this has been, this, what you just saw right here, is, at least for me, was what it was like on the set of the West Wing. You would have, you know, passionate discussion about the words and the work and theater and, and the arts. And, and then, then the idiocy. And then you would have the idiocy, you know what I mean, like the jokes and the banter back and forth. And then you would have real life things of, of how work we're doing on the set can actually affect real life. For me, it was a very influential time. And this and is And of course, and then you have the video. And there's someone up there who okay. is waiting for a cue to roll <laughs> some video and we'll see if Brad Whitford can still act. There it is. Now, now I, I know, auditioned for that video. I, um, uh, in fairness, I did ask I never Josh, heard back. That is not never true. heard back. He I gave was, a good read, too. He was doing scandal. He couldn't do it. I, uh, I know Melissa, how... Melissa, how come uh, Melina doesn't support the troops? <laughs> Josh hates veterans. No, <laughs> Joking. Now it's really turned. Melissa's taking shots no, of me. No, I'm joking. Josh Molina actually. Oh, next question. Okay, next question. Had next come on question. For the podcast. So I know how the panel feels about this, but we're really doing this for you. So I'm going to have to ask you. Uh, I know the panel all agrees that 
Uh, Josh Molina's interrupted enough already, so he doesn't get a question, right? <laughs> and I'm comfortable with that. All right, all right, <laughs> all right uh, Josh, you know the question if you've been listening. Uh, if Richard is the oboe, what instrument were you? Uh, clearly the triangle. <laughs> <laughs> Underrated, overlooked, little used, but an important part nonetheless of the whole. That was that annoying sound I kept hearing. Uh, Aaron, as you, uh, as you, when you wrote this thing, uh, NBC decided that season, eh, we got other things to do. They were not eager to make it. They sat on it for a year. I read it a year before it was made. I, they, yeah. it, my agent sent me the script, so they said, hey, you, you could be in line for a writer's job here. So I read it. I thought, wow, this is great. This is the best TV pilot I've ever read. It's over a year later when they send me the VHS cassette, because the DVDs hadn't been invented yet, um, of what Tommy and the cast and everyone had done with it. And I watched that, and I saw that I didn't, I didn't read those scenes the right way. Uh, Tommy read them the right way. He gave us what was there. Um, as you continued to work with the group, how much more influence were you getting from the set that you didn't expect was coming? Actors, directors? A, a, a tremendous yeah. amount in an interesting way. You're right. Uh, uh, the, the NBC held on uh, to the oh, West Wing. How close did we come to not ever making this pilot the way they sat on it? Uh, uh, very close. Here's what happened. Two things in a row. Uh, uh, first of all, the, the first time around, uh, I literally, I, I, I wrote Fade Out, typed Fade Out uh, on the pilot and, and few minutes later, I mean it, a few minutes later, Monica Lewinsky happened, uh, okay? Uh, so there was a general sense, of we, we were okay sitting on it. We, we simply can't do this right now. There's, people will giggle. Um, uh, I, you can't do it, you gotta uh, wait a little bit. Uh, we did wait a little bit. Um, uh, we, we made the pilot, there, there was also a change in management at, at NBC. Uh, uh, the, the first group of people, even Lewinsky notwithstanding, they were kind of uh, uh, interested in it, but they, they brought me up to the uh, chairman's office um, and, uh, and had some, some notes where I don't do any network bashing, and you know, I, I, I get this stuff, but they wanted things like, uh, you know. I'll be more than happy to step <laughs> in anytime you need that. Um, uh, you know, they wanted. Josh to literally like go out in a boat and and help those Cuban refugees um, like uh, like Rahm Emanuel in a speedo. Yeah, uh, uh, they th this this is just people talking and uh, uh, and and they had trouble with that. So uh, there, there was a change in management on NBC. They they ordered the pilot. We made the pilot, and the pilot did not test through the roof. Uh, it really didn't. It didn't do great, and NBC was on the fence about putting it on their schedule. So Warner Brothers, very smartly, uh, in order to sell NBC the show, they decided to invent four brand new demographics that had never been used in television before. <laughs> households earning more than $75,000 a year, households with at least one college graduate, households uh, where they subscribe to the New York Times, and finally, and this is 1999, 
This was the most important one. Households with internet access, uh, uh, which wasn't, you know, now it's every household has internet access. But that wasn't the case in 1999, because we were right in the middle of the dot-com boom, and those dot-coms wanted some place to advertise. That's what got us uh, on the air. And if you were to go back and, and look at those episodes with the ads in them, which of course you won't, you'd see that well over half of our ad buys were for dot-coms. Uh, but the more so, the internet question, is a force for good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can be. Um, I, well, I'm grateful to the internet for getting this show on the air. But the um, uh, uh, the other question that you got, which was the you know what as as we went, what was I getting back from the cast that was informing the writing? You know, that to, to get this thing going, and the the answer is a lot. For instance, um, I. At the outset, in the first few episodes, it was uh, Toby and CJ were the two characters that I was having the most difficulty uh, uh, getting the bat on the ball with, for reasons having nothing to do uh, with them, and entirely uh, to do with me. Um, uh, I, I kept kind of, sorry, uh, just fouling the ball back. I could get a piece of it, I couldn't get all of it, uh, and uh, and I knew how good Richard uh, and Allison were, and I knew how good these two characters were. And if I needed any reminding, Tommy would come into my office several times a day uh, and say, "You know, I uh, I I think you can really give Richard and Allison uh, uh, more to do. Uh, they, I, I think you could really be happy with what you see." And uh, it was an early episode uh, called. The crackpots and these women. And what happened was, uh, <laughs> um, what happened was, because in the pilot episode, uh, the character of Toby, uh, neither the character of Toby nor the character of CJ, had that much to do. There just wasn't enough meat on the bone to uh, uh, to to be able to audition them with, to, to be able to see what we wanted to see. Tommy asked me to just write a scene for Toby and CJ out of nowhere, in, in with no context at all. Just write a three, four-page scene uh, for these guys to do that they could audition with, and I did. Um, and I don't need to tell you. And by the way, Lawrence, I, I mean, I hope you get a point to ask you uh, some questions. I'm not taking any questions. <laughs> Lauren, Lawrence ran seasons five through seven, but uh, more importantly, from my point of view. He, I, I can assure you that if there's a moment from the West Wing that you love and really remember, I can assure you Lawrence O'Donnell played a starring role in that moment happening uh, on TV. So not wanting to let any scene get wasted, I wasn't gonna write a four-page scene that we liked a lot and just throw it out. Um, uh, I thought, well, I, I have the beginning of the next episode here. Here's four pages. I just need another, uh, well, 71, and, uh, and we'll be on our way. And what happened was I really found out where True North was on Toby, uh, uh, which was that, uh, uh, you, you may not remember, he wasn't Bartlett's first choice to be the communications director. And in this episode, we found out why. And the reason was simply that any time that Bartlett was acting in a cowardly fashion, 
anytime he was acting like a politician, anytime he wasn't doing the right thing and knew it, when there was, sometimes there isn't a right thing to do, but anytime he was backing into a, a politics and not doing what they came there for, all it took was looking at Toby um, uh, uh, to remind him and make him feel small, and Bartlett at first decided, uh, I can't have that around, uh, and then decided, I have to have that around. Um, and we learned that uh, at the end of The Crackpots and These Women, and it was at that point uh, uh, that, um, you know, I, I, I can't say that I got the, continue the metaphor, the full bat on the ball in, in, any episode, in every episode by, uh, by any means. Um, uh, but I loved it, I wanted more of it, uh, um, and uh, I can say the same thing about every character in the show. Lawrence, I just want to say, because you said, uh, say what, don't regret not saying anything. This is what I don't, the, I, I don't want to regret not saying this. No human being will ever again write 22 one-hour episodes for four years, beautifully written, complicated verbally, complicated personally, funny, about something, that's 11 feature films a year. It is extraordinary. It will never, ever happen again. Yeah. That's, that's actually just a challenge uh, to Aaron to write another one for us, please. Um, I just have to continue on, on, on that theme. Uh, you know, I th I'm thinking of, uh, thank you, I'm thinking of, um, of uh, 17 People, which happened the next season. Mm -hmm. And what, uh, what, I, what I, I remember pitching to Aaron, and it turned into this incredible episode. And by the way, the, I, uh, my favorite five arc, you know, uh, storyline having to do with MS and how everyone, uh, uh, how they dealt with discovering the secret and all that. But I remember pitching to Aaron, um, if you ever need Toby to be uh, stumped and trying to figure something out, um, th that I want to be playing with this, with this Spalding, which was a New York City stickball ball. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and I pictured myself in my office just bouncing the ball and catching it as an ode to Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. <laughs> and that's all I said to Aaron, and he ended up coming <laughs> Up with this incredible episode and and this incredible storyline. I don't know if it's because of the of the rubber ball, but um, that's that's an that's an indication of all you have to do is give him a little inkling, and uh, a little spark, and he ends up coming up with brilliance. Um, I I remember on on Noel, I remember I be, I, I got I remember I'd been shot and Aaron's just in, like cranking out the stuff, cranking out the stuff. I knew you were going to deal with it at some point, but I remember because you very wisely, both of you thought, okay, assassination, that's over. Let's move on. Uh, but I remember you're driving in the golf cart, like chugging coffee. <laughs> you're like, hey, hey. And I, and I remember saying, um, it does feel a little weird that like I got sh shot recently. <laughs> <laughs> And I understand that we want to move on, but it does feel a little funny. <laughs> um, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 that, I think okay, that well, actually listen. the most blatantly obvious of them all was um, Allison in her trailer 
would sing the jackal. That was <laughs> Alice and Janney singing the jackal, where we were wise enough to say, Aaron, come listen to Alice and Janney sing the jackal. And the next week on the table read, the jackal was in the jackal. Now, um, this was, I enjoyed listening to this, uh, uh, but uh, I, I did not do these things by myself, uh, uh, by any means. Uh, uh, there was a tremendous amount of help. Somewhere in this auditorium is Kevin Falls. Kevin! Um, Woo! He's right there. There he is, right Kevin there. was co-executive producer. Uh, a job he had, yeah! Uh, uh, it, it was a job, uh, Kevin was, uh, uh, ran the writer's room the second season of Sports Night, which was the same as the first season of The West Wing, and when, when Sports Night was canceled, I, uh, I grabbed him and brought him over to, to The West Wing uh, uh, to run the writer's room, and uh, I described it this way once in a book, uh, once way, I described it once this way in a book. Learn how to speak, will you? I'll tell you. <laughs> It was like, if you remember Animal House, uh, Hoover, the frat president who's desperately trying to keep everybody in line. We're on double secret probation. Come on, guys, we can't have a toga party now. That's Kevin Falls. Uh, now I understand why we got Vice President Otter. <laughs> and it would happen because of people like Lawrence, and it would happen because of Lawrence. Um, I'm not a politically sophisticated person. Uh, I, uh, my college degree is, I promise you, my college degree is in musical theater. Uh, and uh, the oftentimes, uh, uh, the way an episode would get started uh, would be me knocking on uh, uh, Lawrence's uh, office door and saying, hey, Lawrence, what are you thinking about? Um, I, and, uh, I, you know, he'd say, let me tell you something. Uh, the census is interesting. <laughs> and I'd say, are, are you absolutely sure about that? Um, <laughs> and he'd say, yes, because listen, why? Um, uh, uh, and then the two of us would go to Kevin and say, hey, Kevin, Listen, the census is interesting. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and then I'd be able to come back many hours later. Kevin would be working uh, uh, with the staff. You'd see written on the whiteboard, the census is interesting, but, but the magic marker kind of trailed off at the end. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, uh, sure enough, what, what, what Kevin and the staff would be able to get together for me is, uh, ultimately, these big ideas that you have, they've got to get small uh, uh, to fit in this show. They've got to get small. Um, uh, we can't cure homelessness uh, on the West Wing. What we have to do is talk about one guy. Um, uh, and that one guy, by the way, isn't the homeless guy. The one guy we're talking about has to be the guy on our show. Um, uh, so we have to make homelessness that small uh, and, and that personal in order for it to, to work on our show. Just to, oh sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was only wanted to back up what you said about Lawrence because um, one of the great gifts of uh, doing material that's so thick and so rich 
and so complicated as, as these political issues were, is that we had Lawrence to go uh, call him on set and go, Lawrence, I have no idea how Toby solved Social Security. I can't figure, I can't, I to this day don't understand. If I had to read it to you right now, I wouldn't know what I was saying. But um, Lawrence would come down and explain in detail, as he still does, um, trying to explain today's uh, election cycle. And, um, and the most fun that I had was, was uh, uh, asking you um, what this means. And then another um, person we had working for us was a guy named Pat Cadell, um, who's a very interesting man. And to have Lawrence give you his, his take and then go to Pat Cadell and give you his take, and then imagining the two of them in the same room together. That didn't happen that much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but what it did. You know, one, one interesting thing, you, you talk about that episode, one unexpected, I think, power of, of this show was um, uh, maybe two million people would watch, uh, watch the news at night. You get like a sound bite in. We would get, at one point, I don't know, 19 million people yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Would, would tune in, and over the course of an hour, you would get the bullet points of a very complicated uh, argument between computer modeling and uh, head counts and the implications of that in the national census uh, and on policy. Now, you had to get Rob Lowe laid, <laughs> but... <laughs> It, it was. It no was one's an, recording. Uh, it was. It, it was. It, it, it was an unexpected, uh, I think, power of this show that you could get discussions, uh, nuanced discussions. Even though uh, the big thing about Aaron, like you would always say, I'm not here to serve civic vegetables or unzip. And Barbara Streisand's going to come out and tell you how to live your life. Um, uh, the thing about Aaron, I think, it's the collision of C-SPAN with an impatient showman who, who, who wants, oh God, am I going to lose their attention? Are they going to laugh? I want to take them on a ride. I, I want them to feel something. It's, it, it's a, it's, it's, I want to hold their attention. And the col collision of that with politics you know, which, the, it, which is values made real, uh, I, I, I think, made it work. In those seven years, I was C-SPAN's only viewer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, got to do a quick story about how this uh, dynamic worked. And it's a season one story, and it's an episode you'll remember. And just uh, the one preface I will give to it very quickly is that I've been a lifelong opponent to the death penalty in all its forms. And so I, I pitched to Aaron, because I'm noticing there's all these there are these federal death penalty cases that are ripening to the point where they might actually have a federal execution, which would put the president in the position that governors are in with that one minute to midnight clock. You know, do I make this happen or not? And I, and I just thought this is a uniquely dramatic thing, and I want us to do it before it happens in the real world. And so uh, I, I lay it out for Aaron. I give him the pitch about how this works, and we get to have that thing, you know, of the one minute to midnight thing. And I, I and it's a, it's took faster to say than this. And my last line of my pitch, Aaron says, oh, I think word for word while I'm saying it, we both said exactly the same thing. Okay, but we gotta kill the guy. Because we didn't wanna see that cliche thing. And the thing that fascinated me was, I always wanted to see people who did not have my political opinion 
arrive at a position different from mine. That was much more interesting for me to explore in, in fiction writing than just going with what I thought. But uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. About everything that you said, including, uh, uh, yeah, but the guy's going to have to die. But here is the difference between how your mind works and, and mine. And I, I, I really, I'm saying, using this as an example to, to illustrate what Brad just said, that mine wasn't a political agenda, it's coming more from a storytelling point of view. First of all, Tommy had been saying uh, uh, for a long time, it'd be great to do uh, uh, an episode about the uh, federal death penalty. I wasn't getting anything from what Tommy, Tommy was, what Tommy was uh, visualizing something different from me. Uh, he said that and I, I was thinking of a guy with a tin cup uh, on the bars. We don't do that on this show. Uh, that's not what we do. Lawrence uh, 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 brought sort of politics to it, his, his, his personal politics. But it wasn't until someone said, there's something interesting. You know that we don't execute people on the Sabbath? Both Sabbaths, Friday sundown to Sunday uh, sundown, we don't execute people. And suddenly, this will be great. The episode will take place in these 48 hours. President got to, uh, now, um, I, I, I don't know what happened, I, I just saw it. I like that episode very much. Take the Sabbath day. Um, uh, uh, boy, everybody really did a uh, hell of a job. We met Marley Matlin uh, in that episode. Uh, but um, that was a l just an awful lot of teamwork from Tommy, Lawrence, Kevin, uh, and uh, then the, uh, and then Tommy directed the episode beautifully. Go back and watch it. This is a bit like, um, Somebody saying I buried Paul on, in, uh, uh, on uh, Magical Mystery Tour at the end of Strawberry Fields. Uh, if you watch the episode, at the very end, um, it's not the very end, it's right before the last scene. Tommy goes outside the Oval Office window, okay? And it's snowing. And you'll see, it's gonna happen, it's gonna take about that long to happen, okay? You'll see a reflection in the window of the guy who we never see, the, the, I don't know what you call him, the, the, the guy on death row, um, we'll see him being tied down to the table. It goes by uh, uh, like that as a reflection in the window um, uh, while a cantor named Carol Sugarman is singing a beautiful Hebrew uh, prayer. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, did you win your second Emmy for it, it would have been your fourth total Emmy, but your second Emmy another for bad episode. I want. <laughs> uh, what's interesting too about that episode that uh, that I always loved about Aaron's writing is you have the most serious issue being dealt with in the most solemn way, and then I'm waking up hungover and fish fishing waders. <laughs> I'm like wondering why this. Is uh, deaf woman is um, screaming, uh, like, uh, it, 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 the juxtaposition of, uh, it's a weird writer who says, okay, here's the A story. The A story is this death penalty thing, and, and we don't execute people on the Sabbath. And then, you know, we'll have a hungover White House guy in fishing waders. It's an odd I mind. I also think when, you know, I was talking about remembering moments, Carl Malden was the guest star of that brilliantly. Um, and he, he, he got there first thing in the morning. He was in rehearsal, I mean, ready to go. 
88 uh, so years old. So professional, 88 years old. And then he said, Tommy, come here, I want to show you something. And he said, I'm, I'm going to use this prop. It's the Bible. And I went, great. And then he was playing, Father, you should use a Bible. He said, I use this on, on the waterfront. Oh. <laughs> this is Bible we were like, playing we, Father John on, on the waterfront. Like the, you know, the shroud of, I mean, we <laughs> couldn't <laughs> touch it. Uh, Elia Kazan was talking to you while you were holding it. It made me feel a lineage there. It was yeah. an extraordinary thing. Yeah. I want to just, uh, one more minute on the, how dynamic the feedback loop was from the set uh, to what would, was happening in the writer's room and the scripts that Aaron was writing. Uh, Janelle was hired uh, just on a per episode basis to begin with. Uh, it thought to be, as we would say, you know, a small part because she's Brad's assistant. And she kept turning in these performances that kept making the writer's room go, wait a minute, you know, in addition to... Um, uh, and, and that was Aaron grabbing all that stuff. Tommy, were you were you like at the end of a shooting day saying, uh, "Aaron, you got to you got to see what Janelle's doing." Well, yes, uh, that, and then uh, she but that actually went back to Sports Night. I said yeah. that because she did a guest shot on Sports Night. But you know, I like to I've sort of use this before writer's Darwinism, which is you start to watch the evolution. That's the the blessing of television, and it's also the blessing of working with someone like Aaron who doesn't have scripts so far in advance. Right. Uh, <laughs> But that's a good thing. I, I, it really deeply is a good thing because you're actually watching these people live and breathe and become something. And as that happens, the writers, the room, all of us start to see, wow, this whole thing is taking place. And it was so clear what was happening between Josh and Donna. And it was just sort of planted in there. And then, you know, Aaron took off and the writers took off with creating this phenomenal relationship. That Janelle, was, did you know that was happening when that was happening? Um, I, I don't think I, I'd, a lot of people said, oh, there's this thing going on with you and, and your boss. And I, I was so focused on um, being asked back the next week <laughs> that I was really trying to make every moment that, that I, as rich and and free and, and great as I possibly could. But the whole basis of my character, before I, before I even started day one, was Donna was drop dead, head over heels, 100%, would die for him, jo was, would die for Josh. And every file I signed, every, every policy I qu asked about this subtext was I just love you so much I would do anything for you at any moment <laughs> and that was what I did and uh, that was my choice it was before I met Brad oh that's by the way bad. Brad thinks <laughs> clearly <laughs> I was just gonna say that Brad actually thinks that's the subtext of every actor that works with him and that's no, how really you know was. how good an actress Janelle really yeah. is yeah. I felt like it was in the part that I read, uh, uh, in the pilot. I felt like it was there. And then and when I you could, got to the set. It, it was so, so easy because it was you, Brad. And that's true. It really was easy because it was Brad. I, I wouldn't have made it past the first uh, day if it weren't for Brad, who, uh, you know, um, I knew that I was going to stay on the show. Um, the the I, I, I had this amazing moment where I opened up the, the third, I think it was the third episode 
um, of the, the first year, and, um, and I had this long teaser, this long walk and talk with um, where I was chasing Brad around saying, CJ wants to see you, CJ wants to see you, CJ, and he's like, oh, I got stuff to do, and I said, okay, well, CJ wants to see you, she and, um, and then I, I felt really good, we got through the whole thing, and I felt good, good, but I was, you know, a little dissatisfied, I thought, oh, I could do better, I could just do better, I just could do better, and, um, and I didn't have any power on the show, I knew they were really like me, they were very friendly and kind to me, but I, you know, I was a guest, guest of a guest star on the show. I wasn't even a guest star, I don't think. <laughs> and, um, and Brad looked to me, and it was just this moment that I, I'll never forget. He looked to me and he said, and, and they said, okay, moving on, moving on, and they're packing up their stuff, they're moving on to the next scene. Generally, there's no going back from that on TV. And Brad looked at me and he said, do you want another? And I said, yes, I really want another. And he said, I need another one. <laughs> And so he took the, and it was incredibly generous. And I think he, he, you, he, uh, he really. Brad, Brad, real, Brad really needed another one. <laughs> Maybe, but he, he did it for me. And I feel like that, with that support was, was what gave me the freedom to really do it. And, and I, um, and I believe that was the take that they used, and I believe that it really expressed a certain thing that I just, uh, I just so, so happily got to express, and um, and I th think it just made me, um, I, I could quit my uh, my hostessing job after. <laughs> which, 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 by the way, was the culture on our set, which I've since discovered, having been very spoiled um, on the West Wing, doesn't exist everywhere where uh, Tommy set this uh, uh, culture going in the beginning, and as Brad said earlier today, we were all from theater, we're used to rehearsing, we're used to figuring it out, we're used to getting it as, <clears throat> as right as we possibly can. And um, we had the culture of, I'm sorry, uh, we need another one, I need one more, I need one more. And they let you. <clears throat> I abuse that a little bit, I have to say. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the kind of uh, set that we had, and, and it's a credit to the, the people who were running it that allowed us the freedom to feel that we were, <clears throat> we had proprietary, a proprietary relationship to our characters and to the show. And <clears throat> what, what the end result was, we took great pride in making sure that it was as good as possible. And that's a perfect example. We have uh, a microphone I see set up in this aisle right here for questions from the audience. And uh, Questions for Josh Molina are in that aisle over there. Across where, the street. Where there's no microphone. Uh, Josh will be staying later but, for a person. Uh, uh, Dulay, you came into the show uh, when it was already up and running, was a big hit. And, uh, and I want to ask you about that, what it's like coming into this thing that's already a giant hit and all these people already have their chemistry going. And I want to just throw in a little parentheses of, your warm-up that we all saw backstage, Delay's warm-up for this performance was tap dancing. Um, yeah. And so he was coming to this work from a different place than the rest of the people in this cast. Tell us what it was like joining this cast. Well, well one, the show hadn't actually aired yet. I don't, I'd only seen the pilot, so I knew that the show could be a giant success. And even as you talk about that, I remember the night that we did premiere, 
the ratings had come in, and I didn't know anything about ratings. And everyone's going around saying what the ratings were, and I turned to Brad, and I was like, what does that even mean? He said, it means you're going to be employed for a very long time. <laughs> but coming, for me, coming as a, as a dancer to the whole you know, television world, connecting to Aaron's work, the, I heard the rhythm. I realized from the beginning that this, is, that this is a dance, that this is all musical. This is one big symphony. And all you have to do is come in and play your song. You play your instrument, you come, and you sing it right away. And uh, that's, what, that's what I got, was this is rhythm. This is not, this is not any complicated thing. It's boom, 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 That's how it all connected that in my mind. That wasn't, uh, I had a little bit of a different rhythm when I was going. But one of my favorite, one of my favorite moments uh, in the entire seven seasons was when we had this season, I think it was Noel, where Yo-Yo no, Yo Ma, Yo -Yo Ma came and played with us. Okay, on a break, Tommy and I were just talking about this. On a break, Yo-Yo um, Ma is sitting there playing around with his cello, which you, you know, should do. And, um, <laughs> and Dulé walk, walked up to him and said, can you play that thing you were playing earlier? And Yo-Yo Ma was one of the most outgoing and uh, just generous people you'll ever meet. He goes, sure, and he starts playing. And Dulé starts to try to tap along a little bit to the to this classical piece, which doesn't have a you know ba 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 ba, and he's trying to find it. And Yo Yo Ma is like, "This is cool," and he's uh, playing. And before you know it, um, you know uh, Dulé is shuffling along to Yo Yo Ma, and it was one it of was the most beautiful moments I've ever seen anywhere. It was so. I remember wait, also uh, another quick Yo Yo Ma thing. Uh, first of all, he showed up to work. Uh, a carrying backpack style on his back, his $2 million Stradivarius. <laughs> Sir, we will, you know, we're, we're gonna record the, uh, someplace else. We will give you a challenge. You please don't, the, yeah, first move it far away from me. Okay, I'm, I just know I'm gonna break that thing. He wanted to play his cello and or he had to play it. Tommy had to um, uh, get, you, you may remember, a lot of coverage uh, in that scene. Coverage means pointing the camera at people other than the people who are talking or, or, or playing a cello. Uh, uh, so if you're all listening to Yo-Yo uh, Ma play up here, Tommy has to get Yo-Yo Ma playing uh, uh, with the two of you watching and now this group watching and now he's gotta get this shot but maybe rack focus over here. All these things that he's gonna need to, uh, to put together in the editing room. But, uh, and uh, Yo-Yo Ma was playing the Bach G major, correct? Bach concerto, yeah. Yeah. Um, and didn't need to keep playing it uh, over and over again. We had it on playback. He could have given himself a break. Uh, but he just said, no, I really uh, enjoy playing this piece. And each time he played it, he would play it to someone different. He would just look at uh, uh, Janelle the whole time and just... Uh, uh, play this piece to her, and um, boy, it... I will also say one other thing about Yo-Yo Ma, which was, because in the morning, when normally what you do is, he records it once for you in the environment you're playing, and then you play that back, so that it's an editorial reason. And I had said to him, you know, we're gonna shoot a lot, you're gonna have to do it often, so I think the best thing would be to play back. And he went, you're worried, right? And I went, what are you talking about? You're worried that I won't play it in the same rhythm every time. Don't worry about that. <laughs> It'll be, uh, 
And he did. We could edit any one of the takes, and it would never change the metronome of it. And I remember he actually said to you, Dulé, he went, oh, it's 4-4 time. Don't worry, it's a 4-4 time. And all of a sudden, you started tap dancing 4-4 time, and it was... But the other incredible thing with that $4 million Stradivarius, uh, the background people... Elevating in value as we speak. Yeah, it's going up. <laughs> well, we mentioned it here, so it's going up. Um, but he was letting anybody play it. Any background person, anybody. And he was so excited to be on our set because yeah. when, when first he got there, what it was was a lot of those, you know, uh, the, the, the chairs with the gold uh, bamboo backs uh, uh, that, that you see at weddings and bar mitzvahs uh, uh, lined up uh, in this room with, you know, it would say Donna, Josh, p uh, uh, pieces of paper. Uh, so that stand-ins knew where to be, so that the cameras uh, can start working with this. And like a kid in a candy store, he'd be saying, Donna's going to sit here. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave us all DVDs, uh, or CDs, as I recall. He, yeah. He gave us, came I still have the cello. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we, uh, these people have waited in line for over an hour to get in here. Oh, They're waiting in line. I see no one in the line for Josh Molina questions. <laughs> so we will go to the microphone line right here. Go I ahead. forgot I was still here. <laughs> so did we. Go ahead. Hello. Um, end of season four. Um, you were leaving the show. It seemed from a viewer's perspective and from other writers' perspective that you were throwing story grenades at the whole premise of the show as you were leaving. We have the spoilers. Uh, kidnapping of the daughter, the president leaving his seat to attend. It seemed like very dangerous story places and then off you go. Yeah. Were, were you handing it off with, or were you surprising people? Uh, there were two things that I were doing. The, the second thing, I, I was not throwing story grenades. I okay. wasn't, uh, I, absolutely not. I, okay. I, um, I, it was, um, I, I'll say something I said earlier in the day. Uh, we, we did a thing uh, for the Today Show. Uh, I've never seen uh, an episode from seasons five uh, through seven. Here's the reason why. Uh, when uh, uh, Tommy and I, throughout season four, had been talking about uh, uh, that the end of the season might be the right time uh, uh, to leave, and uh, uh, you know, we watched as things developed, and we thought about it, and we talked about it, and uh, once the decision was made, the announcement of this decision couldn't wait because it would leak out. So. Uh, uh, we called our publicist and said this is happening now, and a, a press release went out right away. And once it did, Larry David called me, um, and uh, who's a guy I, 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 I've shaken hands with a few times, chatted with a little bit. He's not a friend of mine. Larry David left Seinfeld early too. Seinfeld went on without him, uh, and he said, "Listen, this is very important. You can't ever watch the show again." because either the show is gonna be great without you and you're gonna be miserable. The show's gonna be less than great and you're gonna be miserable, but either the way, you're gonna be miserable. And I didn't believe him because Larry David is professionally miserable. Uh, <laughs> he's really good at it. And so I had them, uh, before it aired, send me episode 501, season five, uh, episode one, on half inch, uh, a videotape. That's how we watch things then. And I put it in my VCR, which is also how we watch things then. 
and I don't think 20 seconds went by. I have no idea whether it was great or less than great. I really don't. I'm sure that it was great, given this cast, given the people who came in behind me, given John Wells. Um, but it, it just felt like I was watching somebody make out with my wife. Uh, okay. It felt horrible, and I, I, I couldn't do it again. So I don't know how the story that I started finished or how anything else happened on the show. I, I don't know how the show wrapped itself up. You don't know uh, about the whole superpower storyline. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. It so to, really answer good. Your <laughs> to answer your question, I apologize to everybody else in line. Uh, you, uh, it, it, it shouldn't come as that much a surprise to you that brevity is kind of a challenge for me. That, um, I was doing two things. The second thing that I was doing was uh, trying to set the table for the people who were coming in. I didn't want them to have to come back uh, that July with a completely blank piece of paper with nothing going. I know it always helps me when there's a little something left over from a last episode. You can come into the writer's room and say, okay, well, we've got this going on. Our favorite thing, right, Kevin, would be when an episode, when a script was too long and something lifted out perfectly and could go uh, uh, right in the next... Uh, that's right. I think that there was a, wasn't there a story we carried for about five episodes? We kept trying to. If we had time, we'd talk about the Halloween episode, which is fantastic. But the first thing that I was trying to do was this. Something happened in, this is season one, uh, right? What is the episode when everybody goes to the Georgetown bar with Zoe? When you're making chili. Uh, well, that's I the crackpots and these women, it. isn't it? No, 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 that, no, it can't be. Mr. Willis of Ohio, was that it? Mr. Willis of Ohio. It's Mr. Willis of Ohio. Um, they, they go, and they being, it includes Zoe Bartlett, the president's daughter. Um, uh, they go there, and it, it's a new thing where Zoe doesn't want, she's a college kid now, she doesn't want her secret surface detail right on top of her or anything, so... They've made a deal with her, um, you know, okay, just carry this thing on your keychain. This is a garage door opener. It's a button that you push. It's going to beep us. We're not going to be more than 50 feet from you, uh, uh, but, but we'll be right there if there's any kind of trouble. Um, uh, and Bartlett, a father, reluctantly agrees to this, and this thing happens at a bar. So Bartlett calls his daughter in and does what any father would do in that situation. He scares the hell out of her. Tells her how dangerous this can be. Tell her that the nightmare of the Secret Service isn't him getting shot. The Constitution has a mechanism to take care of anything uh, happening to him. Uh, the Vice President just takes over. The nightmare is her getting abducted, getting kidnapped. What happens now? What happens when they've got a knife at the President's daughter's throat and they're saying, release these prisoners, or how about aim these missiles uh, uh, at Israel? In any event, forget about the what do we do part of it. You don't have a commander-in-chief anymore. You have a father who's uh, gone uh, out of his mind 
uh, uh, with worry. That guy can't be making good decisions. So what do we have to do? We have to remove him somehow using uh, the 25th Amendment and stick him in exile. And uh, now we've got ourselves a king in exile, somebody else over here. And what happens when the king in exile decides that the guy who's doing the job is doing a bad job and he tells Josh or Leo or Toby, listen, get word to Fitz uh, that I want this and this to happen. All right, well, we, we've got a problem now. There's a coup d'etat uh, uh, underway. We've got a constitutional crisis at the worst possible time. He tells Zoe all of these things. And frankly, as I was writing it, and as Martin was performing it, I thought, where the hell's this story been? Uh, 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 this is absolutely fantastic. It, it can't, because we can't do this stuff on our show. It can't, it has to be small enough uh, uh, to fit in our show. Um, uh, so I imagined, I, I even left little clues. I had um, Anna Devere Smith say, this is in the season finale, season four finale, uh, uh, which is called 25. Um, this is not a James Bond operation. We're gonna find out uh, uh, that she is tied to a chair in the back of a muffler shop in upstate New York. Um, I had uh, recently been reading about rapturists, people who are trying to hasten the end of the world. Uh, because the, it, that it'll hasten the rapture. Um, uh, and I thought, okay, great, them. But it's certainly going to look like this is an act of international terrorism. Um, uh, but let's have the whole thing be over with by tomorrow. Uh, I, you know, let's not drag this on for a long time. Let's not start a war or anything. Let's not any of our guys suddenly be members of the FBI and have guns in their pocket. Um, uh, but let's make sure that they're not victims. The, all of the characters on this show are protagonists. They're all protagonists, and one rule, one in, rule that you can't ever violate uh, uh, about protagonists, they can't be passive, uh, they can't be victims, they have to be active. Uh, uh, so it was gonna be, I was trying to leave the new writers, as we say in pool, a leave. Uh, on the table, uh, some stuff to clean up. Um, uh, I was trying to, I didn't ever want to be over their heads saying, well, this is what I intended. So I wanted to make a clean uh, a break of it uh, uh, and let them make these decisions themselves however they want to. Again, I don't know how they wrapped it up, but to be clear, I was absolutely not trying to burn the earth uh, <laughs> uh, behind me. I was trying to seed it. Uh, let me just tell you, Thank we you. were, uh, uh, we were thrilled. I, I actually had left the show for two years and created another show, and that flamed up, and John Wells said to me, Aaron's leaving, we need you back, we need you back. And I, I saw that season finale, and I said, oh, okay, I'm coming back. <laughs> and that first meeting in the writer's room was, it was a banquet. It was, look what the master had left us. We were so thrilled with what was on the table. Go ahead with your question. Thank you. Um, so there's a scene relatively early when Charlie's new and the president's about to go on TV and, and he says to Josh, I've never felt like this before, and Josh says it doesn't go away, which I think is how a lot of us feel and are definitely feeling right now. I was wondering if some of you could talk about during the course of making the show, a scene or an episode or behind the scenes where you didn't feel like that before and it hasn't gone away. I mean, for me, I would say from the first time I walked on the set and saw the Oval Office and saw Martin Sheen and saw Richard Schiff and Rob Lowe and Brad Whitford, and then, oh wow, these are, these are the scenes I'm about to do, and it's 
oh, these, Aaron Sorkin wrote this? I mean, the whole thing, it was just mind-boggling to me. Just a month, maybe two months before, I had about maybe three months worth of rent left to pay. So I was about to be broke. So I mean, I, from the beginning, from the time I walked on the set, pulled onto the Warner Brothers lot. I mean, I, my, my trailer was around the corner. You know, we're, they, they used to call the ghetto. <laughs> But I would, you know, my trailer looked out and all the Friends cars used to pull up because right next to the Friends downstage. So I would see Matt LeBlanc and Jennifer Aniston and everybody get out and go in and 10 minutes later come back out and leave. The whole thing, I mean, from the beginning, it was wow. And from that moment, it has never gone away. I've been on an unbelievable ride and all, all because of this group right here. I'll, I'll tell you where, where, it, where it, it kind of went away for me. <laughs> No, this is, a, this is a good story. You don't have um, to. <laughs> bear with me, will you? Um, I, I, the first time we went into the real, uh, the real, first time we went into the Oval Office on set, I spent probably two hours by myself, just studying all of the uh, the artifacts in there, because it was complete replication of the actual um, uh, Oval Office, and you know the the desk where John, little John John was underneath, and all the artwork was the same. The couches were exactly the same. Uh, I don't know when it was, what year, but a, a while later, we were doing a, a basketball sequence in front of the um, in front of the White House. That was the same year, like the fourth the first, episode. Okay, well then it was quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we're doing we're doing we're doing a scene, and I busted up my knee again, so I had to. Uh, the next day, we were getting our first tour of the real White House, and I was on crutches. And we were getting to uh, so know, Betty Curry was there. President Clinton was not because he was in New Zealand. Uh, and, but we went into the Oval Office, and I was hurting, my knee was killing me. And I went over to the striped couch, and I was about to jump on it to, 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 to relieve the pain. And then I went, oh, wait a second, we're in the real Oval Office. <laughs> Not our Oval Office where we take naps. This is the real, <laughs> real Oval Office. Let's go to the next question, Mike. Hi. I was diagnosed with MS two years ago, and to see that representation on screen is incredibly inspirational, especially when you've just said that everyone is a protagonist, no one there is a victim, and knowing how precise you are with your creative works, did you try out other diseases, why even give the president something so substantial, or you know, what was your thought process in bringing that into the, the storyline? First of all. Good luck to you. Um, uh, uh, we'll all be thinking about you. Um, and I hope uh, you don't feel that I'm glib in talking about uh, I'm glib. Uh, how, I, <laughs> how I arrived at MS. Um, I wanted to, here's what happened. Stalker Channing asked me to have lunch. She had done one episode uh, of the show called The State Dinner, uh, uh, where she had a, a small role in it, but Stockard being Stockard, uh, just like Janelle, made her, she was undeniable, uh, okay? Um, uh, and she asked me to have lunch to tell me that she'd really love to do uh, the show more. Um, and I, I don't remember what else she said uh, at, at that point, because I just started thinking, uh, okay, um, wouldn't it be nice if the first lady was a professional uh, at something. How about a doctor, 
uh, uh, an actual medical doctor. Well, how will we find out that she's a doctor? I don't want her to just say, as you know, I'm a doctor. Um, uh, that's uh, uh, that's going to be bad. You've got to go through all the bad ideas uh, before you get to the good one. And I said, you know what would be a cool way to find out that she's a doctor? Um, uh, and I can combine this with something else I've always wanted to do. Uh, have the president have to do what the rest of us have had to do uh, on any number of occasions. The president's too sick to go to work. He's got to stay in bed and he's got to watch daytime television <laughs> for, in this guy's case, the very first time in his life. But whatever he's got, it looks like a cold, it looks like the flu, should also exhibit signs of something else that Abby is worried about and comes rushing back from some trip that she's on because not even the president's own physician knows that it could possibly be this. And again, Stockard is still talking. We're eating in the Warner Brothers uh, 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 commissary. I'm nodding at the right moments, but I'm trying to figure this out. And I went back to Kevin, and here's where I really have to ask you to forgive my glibness. And I said, Kevin, can you get the researchers on something for me? I need just the right disease, um, uh, okay? Uh, and I, I needed it to have the following characteristics, um, that it, it, it could look like this, but be this, and Abby could be worried that this thing that happened um, uh, uh, could have been, and they came back to me with MS. Um, and, and I asked them a couple of questions about it, and without learning very much about it at all, I, I gave it to Bartlett. Um, I, and uh, <clears throat> honestly, the magnitude of what I'd done did not hit me until the day after that particular episode aired. It happened to be twice a year uh, we are required to appear in front of the press. Uh, okay, twice a year we're, NBC requires us to appear in front of the Television Critics Association, the TCA, which en masse they come to Los Angeles twice a year and <coughs> excuse me, have three weeks of uh, press conferences. And that episode had just aired the night before and all kinds of hands uh, uh, went up and said, you know, Aaron, where are you going with the whole MS storyline? What's gonna happen now? Uh, and then I went, Kevin, um, <laughs> what's gonna happen now? What? You're very well. Next question, go ahead. Hi, uh, this question's for Aaron, and I just want to say thank you for changing my life. I live in BC because of you, and I'm a writer because of you, so thank you. Well, I think to say, um, thank you. And Plug the book. <laughs> Plug the book. Well, uh, Plug your book. book. Your my book. book. I have a book. Oh, yeah, I have a small book called Walk With Us, How the West Wing Changed Our Lives, and it's an anthology of essays and quotes by West Wing fans about how different ways the West Wing has impacted God, that's amazing. But that's not why it came to the microphone. <laughs> um, yeah, so please buy it, it's on Amazon and everything. <laughs> um, my question is, so your writing has impacted and inspired so many other writers, including me, and I was wondering if you could tell us which writers both in your past but also currently inspire you and who do you seek to emulate? Yeah, I'm glad that's the question because uh, at first, thank you very much. I'm, I think that we probably all want to say thank you uh, for that. Uh, but to the extent that uh, our show, uh, that West Wing may have inspired uh, uh, anyone to any other shows uh, that are on TV, uh, you know, any other writers, uh, to the extent that West Wing may have inspired uh, anyone to go into public service, and you have no idea what it does to my heart to see 
uh, so many young people in, in the audience today, people who would have been in kindergarten when, uh, when this show was on the air. have got to learn how to use Netflix. <laughs> and to the extent that we may have inspired uh, anyone to go into public service, uh, baked into that West Wing inspiration would be all the people that came before us. And so, to answer your question, for me, uh, I believe that anyone uh, who who, who's writing good television. I, I think what, what most of us would consider good television is walking in the footprints left by Larry, De, uh, Larry Gelbart uh, when he did MASH uh, and changed everything. Uh, and beyond that, uh, I, I think that uh, David Chase, David Milch, David Kelly, Larry David, uh, <laughs> Stephen Bochco, um, of course, uh, uh, Vince Gilligan. Um, uh, th these are fantastic writers. And by the way, the, the, the debate has long been decided on this. You know, when we were doing the show, uh, we'd be asked the question, uh, is, gee, is, is television starting to no longer be the, uh, uh, the, the red-headed stepchild of, of feature films? Look at all the good people who are working in television. That question got decided long ago. The best theater in America is on television. And I, have, I have to ask, I, have to, I, mean, I think you're leaving out two of your favorite writers, Patty Chayefsky and oh, Preston Oh, of Sturgis. course. Uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, Patty Chayefsky, uh, uh, Patty Chayefsky, Arthur Miller, uh, uh, for sure, um, and, and William Shakespeare. You know, uh, just looking into the future, I just want to say uh, uh, I know somebody who's an amazing writer now would not have written what he's written. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was, is the biggest West Wing freak there is, and he credits Aaron. Let's try to get one question from the audience and then a quick final comment from everybody up here. Hi, I'm glad I'm the last one. Um, I want to first tell you guys thank you for being here. Uh, you're a huge part of my family. Um, I'm 45% here for you guys and then the rest of that I'm here for my sister. Um, <laughs> she is the biggest West Wing fan. She, she plays it in the house just all the time, just so she's close to it all the time. So she's too nervous to come up here. Um, I also wanna say thank you to Aaron Sorkin because, uh, just echoing what everybody has said, but they tell you not to meet your heroes because sometimes you're disappointed. And today you met my sister. And thank you for being so gracious today. Thank you both. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but my question is, where did what next comes fr come from? Um, we say that in our family constantly. Um, it, for us, it means a lot. So I was just curious. Where it came from, from John Wells, didn't it? <laughs> no, it, as a matter of fact, it came from Tommy. Um, uh, and the reason why, what's next is the last line of the episode, right? It's the last line uh, yeah. of the pilot. And, and then be, became, an important, uh, uh, became an important shibboleth. Uh, uh, for uh, for all of the characters, um, but.
but whatever was the last line of the episode, I guess it was uh, uh, Josh, do, yes sir, don't ever, don't, uh, uh, don't ever do that again. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and that was it. Um, Tommy wanted, uh, and uh, what I had written was, uh, the door closes, blackout, uh, okay? Uh, Tommy wanted a, and the world goes on, uh, uh, ending. He wanted to pull back uh, uh, so that we could see this is just another day doing business uh, uh, in the White House. Um, uh, so he asked me, can we not have uh, uh, the abrupt ending? Uh, can we pull back? Um, and so I said, okay. And, and right after that, you know, Josh uh, uh, goes, uh, and I had him shout, Mr. Lanningham, what's next? Um, uh, and we did that, and, uh, uh, and then that came in, uh, in a shadow to gunmen. Uh, uh, it became, we saw that it actually, that what's next actually had started much earlier uh, than that, that it started on the campaign. Okay, we're officially, we're officially into Thank overtime, you. but I do want to get just one more question from the audience. Go ahead, you can go back to that mic, and, and that's it, and okay. then we're going to come back up here, sorry. Awesome. Thank you. My question is about the iconic Josh and Donna scene, I wouldn't stop for red lights. I wanted to know what was the inspiration for that scene? Because it's the most beautiful way of saying I love you without saying I love you that I've ever seen, so. Thanks, I appreciate that, I really do. I, I just have to chalk it up to Providence. Um, it was, uh, I, uh, most of the time, uh, I'm in agony writing. It, it isn't going well, and I can tell something's wrong. It's, it's, it's going too slowly, it's too labored. Um, that scene wasn't. Uh, I, I, I had that scene uh, uh, going in. I, I, I knew uh, I was getting there. I didn't have the line going in, um, uh, but I got there. I felt very good writing it, and I got lucky. It's beautiful. Thank uh, you. You know, I, can, I, can I just say one, one, one little thing? That, uh, Aaron's life is, is, is a kind of unresolvable hell because he needs, <laughs> he needs to write, and it's agony, and it must be great. Uh, but he feels that he might not ever get there. And it's part of it is Aaron's uh, own self, but it's part of the act of writing. And it always makes me laugh that, like, it, it, living my life in Hollywood, if I call Tommy, if I call uh, my agent, if, if I call anybody, if I call my, you know, my brother, uh, I'll leave a message and they'll call back. You call a writer in Hollywood, hello. Like Aaron, Aaron's writing 40 episodes a year, and you'd call him and go, hello, because he wants to stop. Uh, I just want a, a quick word about John Spencer before we go. Yes. Which is, uh, we, um, we, uh, we all saw that scene that John drove us through, and... Uh, and he did work like that every week in the West Wing. And then, I don't know how many years in we were, maybe it was after two years or so, he was doing a play in LA at the Taper. And I went and saw this play, and I realized, oh my God, we're using 10% of his talent. Mm. It was, he was a, a stunning actor to see in the, in the range uh, that he had. But Tommy, just that, that uh, steady cam shot, a lot of pressure on a shot like that that we saw for the actor. 
you have to have a Rolls Royce of an actor cruising through there. Uh, because if you understand, if John Spencer misses one line at any point there, we're going to have to start all the way back at the beginning. It's not like just, okay, just, just go back one line and start again. Uh, when you sent John Spencer on that walk, you knew who you were sending. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and a Rolls Royce is almost an understatement. I mean, the man was a, a gentleman among gentlemen, besides being an extraordinary professional. Extraordinary. He was such a loving man. I mean, just a quick story. I, I, when we did Bartlett for America, uh, I was telling John, I was in his office, telling John about the script and about the napkin and about that he would, and he just burst out crying. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I realized the separation between that character, it's what we've been talking about, and, you know, this sort of, you know, if it, in, and some it has been written before that, you know, Martin was the father and John was the mother of this family that existed. There was a maternal, extraordinary, loving quality about that man uh, <clears throat> that superseded the professionalism that he had. But he was, if you look up the definition of actor, you know, you would see his picture. That's really what it was about. He just was, his craft was so important and the craft didn't ever take away from him dealing with other human beings with the same sort of kindness that his characters always displayed. We, we uh, they're gonna turn the lights off on us. So, um, <laughs> so Melissa, uh, a, a last word from you and then we'll just go through the panel, of course, skipping Josh Molina and um, <laughs> uh, go, go ahead, Melissa. Any last word you'd like to say? Um, I was a small part of this extraordinary, uh, extraordinary show, and it has given me some of the most rewarding experiences, lessons, gifts, friendships I have ever received in my life, and it certainly has led me to what I'm doing now, and I will be forever grateful for having had the opportunity to be part of this. Um, and I just wanted to share one quick thing that Martin Sheen said. Um, you know, Martin Sheen never went to college and he said to me, people always tell me about their college experiences and say that you know, they were the best years of their lives, they just wish they had, had known it and appreciated it. And he said, you know, those were the best years of our lives, but we knew it. And I think that's true. Okay. You're late. Um. <laughs> So for me, I'm just, happy, <laughs> I'm just happy to be here, and one of the reasons why I have been quiet is because in contrast to everybody who's on this stage, and some who couldn't make it today, and some, of course, who are no longer with us, I was not part of creating the fabric of this show that we all know and love. So I've been I picking that anyway. You were, no, you were part of the demise. Was, I'm trying to do some... <laughs> I was trying to do sincere, it wasn't working anyway, but all I really wanted to do is say thank you to all those people, and of course in particular to Aaron, who has been the quintessence of a loyal and generous friend to me, personally and professionally. He's given me every professional break, theater, TV, and film that I've had, and uh, no greater gift than to invite me to be part of this show. Well... I'll start by saying we do give Josh Molina a hard time, but just so you all know, we do love him very much. We do dear. love him. He, you know, so Josh much. gives can us a say, hard time, too. Can we too. say too little, too late <laughs> altogether? <or? laughs> 
but for me, I mean, uh, this has been a journey of a lifetime. Coming and being a part of this West Wing family is the gift that keeps on giving. I remember John Spencer would always say to me when we'd have some wonderful experience, he would say, you wouldn't get this on a cop show. And, <laughs> and, I, and it, those words always ring back to me every time these, these experiences happen. One thing I really appreciate, appreciate about being a part of this West Wing family is they never rested on what they did. It really was always what's next. You'd have a great episode, we'd come back to work, and everybody was always like, that's yesterday. We have to raise the bar. Yes, we've won, we won Best Drama last year, but we gotta do better this year. Tommy would come in and say, we gotta do better this year. And as an artist, that really has stuck with me. I've always keep trying to press towards the higher mark, and I've learned that by being with these wonderful, talented crew. And I love your shirt, I gotta say. Bartlett McGarry, Lyman, Craig, Ziegler, and Seaborn. I love it. I've been watching, looking at it the whole time. Lawrence, can I say one last thing? I don't want this moment no. to go. Hopefully, assuming everyone agrees, the festival has agreed that we can use this, the recording of this panel as oh a my West God, Wing weekly episode. Oh, my God, this is so inappropriate. So, because somebody asked about it, we finish every West Wing weekly podcast with, okay, okay, what's next? And I was thinking, for the sake of the podcast, if maybe we can get an Aaron okay, a Tommy okay, and then everybody give us a what's next. Oh. Will you do that for us? Sure. Always make it about Melina. Say action. <laughs> Say action. And, oh, I've never directed anything. <laughs> I'm in a director's chair and everything. You've and never acted in it. Shut up. <laughs> Quiet, this is important. And action. Okay. Okay. What's, What's next? next? Okay, now Richard and his whatever. Sadly, I'm next, and uh, I don't quite know what, how to follow no that. No pressure. Um, it's funny that you guys brought the what, what's next up, uh, in fact, because uh, when you were talking about the what's next aspect of it, I, I wrote an article once uh, for Huff, Huffington Post called What's Next, and it was about Obama's um, in, uh, acceptance speech in Chicago for the, um, and it was also about my son. And one of the things that, I, that, I, that struck me about Obama, which is what st uh, struck me about us, um, is that the, the great athletes, you know, the uh, Larry Birds and the, and the Seth Currys and the, um, uh, and the Michael Jordans, they never, they never uh, uh, hold on, on that moment. They're not celebrators. You know, Larry Bird was always looking to who he was gonna guard next as the ball went in. Seth Curry's backing up, you know, looking for his coverage as the ball is going in. And there's something about the way we work together, which was always, uh, which was not celebratory, like we, we get to do now, but always looking to, to, to what the next moment was. And it's a way of living in the present kind of beautifully because you have to focus on the next thing that's coming. Um, it's, all this is to say is that um, I appreciate now more than ever uh, how beautiful that experience was. They really are kicking us out of here now. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you finish, it's your panel, but I, I just wanted to quickly say, the thing about television is you never get to see the audience. You never get to see the audience, and I just want to tell you, it is great to finally meet you. Uh, thank you. That's the last word. Thank you. Thank you for joining us around the TV campfire. 
Stay tuned each Thursday for live releases from the festival, in addition to bonus content and exclusive interviews and new original series coming soon. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at ATXFestival and let us know what you think using our official hashtag, hashtag the TV Campfire. Please rate and subscribe to the TV Campfire on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 8 of ATX Festival will be June 6th through 9th, 2019. For more information on attending, visit www.atxfestival.com.